Hey, well, good morning, everybody. I would spend a few minutes uh, kind of talking about how great last week was and Wednesday night was, but I don't have time for that, so we're going to jump right in. Is that good? No, it's been awesome. Hey, we're in this series today called Awakening. Let's all say Awakening together. Awakening. And just the big idea is just this uh, reality that we just have this tendency to go through the motions, right? I mean, we just get in our routines. We have the responsibilities because we have a lot of responsibilities. You have to get your kids places if you have kids. You got to get them signed up for that travel team. Otherwise, they're going to left behind. They'll never pitch for the Braves. I mean, you have got to, we got school things. We have got jobs. We have got bills to pay. Um, if, we're, if you're married, you know, there's some obligations and responsibilities there. There's just, we have a lot of responsibilities. We have a lot of rhythms. We have a lot of routines. And what can tend to happen is it, it can cause us to fall asleep on God. It can cause us just to just kind of go through the motions to get on autopilot and just find out that we're going to walk through life and get to the end and realize we don't even know what just happened. We did what everybody else did. We said what everybody else said, and we ended up sleepwalking through life. And so we kind of stirred that up last week. So to get into today's topic, let me just start with a story from history. You know, the quintessential absolutist monarch throughout history is known as Louis XIV. Louis XIV was the monarch, the king of France, back when France was somebody. Uh, <laughs> you can laugh right there. Um, <laughs> if you're French, I'll talk to you later. Um, but he... France was actually the, the premier economy and country in Europe, and he was the king. He took the throne when he was five years old. Think about that for a second. Five years old. He ruled for almost 72 years before he died. He, he was known as the Grand Monarch. Louis XIV lived in the Palace of Versailles. Anybody been to the Palace of Versailles? Like a handful, of, it is incredible. Luxury, splendor, architecture, artwork, everything. This is where he lived. And he lived there with 4,000 servants and with 1,000 other nobles, friends. And they spent their time hunting and gambling. And, um, and he spent the rest of his time ruling the country. And he ruled with an iron fist. He would get up every morning and they would dress him as the monarch in his bedroom. And he would do most of his work from his room where he got dressed in the morning. He, he liked to say this, I am the state. Sound familiar? I am am the state. He was known as the Grand Monarch. Another title of his was the Sun King because he knew that the sun was the center of the universe. And that's who he thought he was. That's who he claimed to be, the Sun King. But his favorite title, his favorite title was Louis the Great. Louis the Great. He had a priest in his court by the name of Jean-Baptiste Massillon. And Massillon was known as the greatest orator in all of France, possibly in all of Europe. So as Louis began uh, to plan for his funeral, he went into intricate detail how everything should happen at his funeral. He was a control freak, the ultimate control freak. And he lived in this country where everybody did what he said, thought what he thought, and, and moved whenever he said move. If he said jump, they said how high. And so they began to plan his funeral, and eventually he died at the age of 72. He laid in state for 45 days. Uh, he, uh, his processional to the cathedral of Notre Dame where he had his funeral was 12 hours through the night. Louis was buried in a gold coffin that was also decorated with gems and diamonds and other uh, expensive uh, uh, gems on the outside. 
And, and, he, and he had this wish. And his, one of his dying wishes, one of his plans for his funeral was that in that gold coffin at the Cathedral of Notre Dame, there would be a single candle over the coffin so that the whole entire cathedral just reflected the glory that was Louis, that that was the only light and that that candle represented his centrality in their lives. So thousands of people showed up in hushed silence as Massillon began to move to give his oration. What would he say? Like what words could do justice to this man who claimed to be the greatest person to ever live? And as Massillon took the podium after he climbed the stairs, he reached over and he extinguished the candle and a hush fell over the room. What, what, what would he do now? And he said these four words that have echoed throughout history. Only God is great. Only God is great. And that gives us great hope. Amen, somebody? Like this gives us such great hope. And wherever you are on the spectrum of faith today, you may not even know that you believe in God. What I want to do is do my dead level best to paint a picture of who this God is we say that we worship. And then we say that we serve. And maybe you do follow God, but only kind of today. So we want to fan this into flame because here's what's going to happen in your heart. When you get a great view of our great God, man, all of a sudden peace begins to settle in your soul because you realize you are not alone. You don't have to achieve, earn, compete, compare. You can live through the grace that is the great God that we know. Man, you'll live with a different kind of hope. You'll live with a different kind of simplicity with your, in your decisions. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come at it two different ways. I'm going to talk about his glory, a little bit of a church term. Some of us kind of know glory, but, but it's a little bit of a church term. I'm not talking about the movie glory. I'm talking about the glory of God. But then I also want to talk about grace, another church word that we all need. Amen. Now, what we see happening here in this particular passage, ironically, is also starts out with a king, doesn't it? It starts out with a king dying in the same way that Louis died, this king dies. And it says that in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now, now, what you need to know about this particular king was in the nation of Israel, he was very successful. And he had gone and he had he had, uh, because of his military buildup, they had peace, they were prosperous, people felt safe, and they loved their king. But, but towards the end of his life, he got a little complacent in his success. You know, he, he accomplished some things, he thought, on his own. He'd built some houses, he'd saved for retirement, he'd gotten his kids through college, he'd been successful in his marriage. He, he had some success and he got a little complacent and, and, then he, and then he dies. And this is a danger that we all face, that we can have some success in some areas in our lives. And guess what happens? We don't necessarily reject God, but we're going to just reduce him just a little bit. We may not reject God outright, say you don't exist, but what we do is we reduce him a little bit and we make ourselves bigger and we make God smaller. And we want God to fit in the box that we create. We want him to fulfill our agenda, don't we? We want him to, to come through for us, to give us the things that we want, to give us the things that we think are successful, give us the things that we think will make us comfortable. And we reduce God. And that's what had happened in the life of King Uzziah. They hadn't rejected him, but reduced him. This happens throughout the Bible. It's why the second commandment in Exodus chapter 20 says, you shall make no graven image. In other words, you shall create, no, you, you shall make no idol in order that you would worship this image, that you would reduce God to just a carving or some figurine of gold. Like, don't do that. 
but, they, but we know that throughout the Bible, this happens. They reduce God. We know that it happens with the Ten Commandments. And then Jesus gives us the great commandment. It says, what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Like, but why? So that we would remember how big God is. But we tend to reduce him into our own image. You know, one of the things that is said about us as humans, it says what we think about when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Maybe you've heard this. Probably you have. What you think about when you think about God is the most important thing about you. So when you think about God and you don't think he's real and you don't think he exists and, you, and that's what you think about, it's going to impact how you live. It's going to impact your relationships. It's going to impact your job. It's going to impact your parenting. It's going to impact your friendships. It's going to impact the house you buy, the, uh, the city that you live in. What you think about when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Like, what, what is it? What do you think about God? Like, when you think about God, how is that informed? Where did you get your opinion of God? The words that come to mind, the images that come to mind when you think about God, where do they come from? It reminded me of a story when uh, my kids were little. How many of you guys have kids you have to wake up in the morning? Some of you guys, you know what it's like. And so I can remember walking in the room and say, hey, it's time to get up. And I go back in the room and they're still asleep. And so I would go in and I would eventually I would say, hey, it's time to get up. And then they would sit up in their bed and I'm like, are you awake? And they would say yes with their mouth, but their eyes said no. So I can remember this one time I went into one of my sons and I said, are you awake? He said, yes. I said, who am I? He said, the pizza man. <laughs> like, I don't know what that's about. That's weird. One time I walked in, I said, who am I? He said, Peyton Manning. I'm like, couldn't you pick Tom Brady? Like, I don't understand that. But the reality is, man, sometimes we look at God like the pizza man who's going to deliver something that we want when we order it on time, hot and ready for me. We look at God sometimes like this genie in a bottle who's supposed to do the things I ask for because it says somewhere in the Bible that you should pray without ceasing, that you should ask, seek, and knock. So I'm just asking for the things I want, and he should deliver those to me. You know, for some people, maybe um, you know that God is supposed to be looked at as a, as a dad, as a father. We call him our heavenly father. That's one of the things that Jesus brought to us. But your dad was not worth following. And so you had this image of God maybe as a dad who was distant, or abandoned you, or just not around, or maybe even abusive. And we have to be careful and understand. It says that Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up. And we have to be careful that we don't reduce God to a God of our own making, that, that we look to God's word to give us a picture of who God is supposed to be. If you want to know what God is like, the place you're going to start is by reading the Bible. And as we open up the Bible, we see so much about God, about his goodness, about grace. We see so much also about things that God hates, that God despises. You know, what, what, one thing that the Bible does is it kind of dispels a lot of the coffee cup cliches that we hear that aren't really true. God helps those who help themselves. Actually, the problem is you can't help yourself. That's why God needs to help you. And so many of those, we need to get a vision of God from what God says. Isaiah looks and says, I saw the Lord. Now, now, one thing about the Bible that you have to know is the Bible is always pointing to Jesus. Amen right there? Right. This, if, if you're new to Bible study or from another tradition, what you need to know about the Bible is it always points 
to Jesus. Jesus even says this in a story. There are some people around him who, who were experts in God's word at that time. The New Testament wasn't here, but the Old Testament was. And they are experts. And he says, you search the scriptures because you think in them you find life, but they bear witness of me. Everything points to Jesus in the Bible. Amen? Right? So, so think about this. David and Goliath, guess who you're not in that story? David. You're not David. You don't take on the giant. You don't kill the giant. You and me, we're the Israelites hiding, scared, packing camp. Jesus is David who takes on Goliath. We always use the lenses of who Jesus is when we read the Bible to show us what God is like. Have you, how have you reduced God? Have you reduced God in your mind? Maybe through disappointment, Maybe just through misconception on how you learned God. Maybe you learned God in a way that was small and reduced. We see Isaiah see him high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Man, because of God's glory, man, we cannot, we cannot reduce God. We cannot reduce God. It goes, he goes on, and as he talks about, he's high and lifted up. Listen, because of God's glory, life revolves around God not us. Life revolves around God, not us. It says he is high and lifted up. He's seated on the throne. And because he's seated, what that means is he just gets authority and he gets honor. Okay. God gets authority and God gets honor. Like it reminds me of a story. When I was, when I was in seminary, um, the, there was a guy who was a president emeritus and you guys know the president, the emeritus of anything is just somebody who's kind of opt is, is past their worth worthfulness and they get to keep getting paid. That's what that, now I'm just kidding, uh, jokes, but the emeritus is someone who has honor and who has some authority, who has some respect. And the present emeritus of the seminary that I went to was a guy named Robert Naylor. Now, when I went there, he was in his eighties. And what was cool about this is Dr. Naylor had gone to seminary with my grandfather so that was pretty cool. My grandfather had passed. So every now and then I'd pop in on Dr. Naylor and he'd try to disciple me a little bit. He'd inspire me a little bit. And there was this story that went around by, about Dr. Naylor. Now, Dr. Naylor was probably the most humble man I'd ever met. I mean, I could go by anytime he would have time, time for me. And so um, super humble, but there's a story that went down that while he was actually president, that there was a, a faculty meeting and he was out of town, but somehow he got back early. And so he walks into the room, they're already meeting. And so the person, the dean of the college who's sitting at the, kind of at the first seat at the head of the table stands up and says, Dr. Naylor, Dr. Naylor, come here and sit at the head of the table. And he says, son, wherever I sit is the head of the table. <laughs> hey, that's God, right? He is central. It is about him. It's not about us. I love for it to be about me. Don't you? Like, be honest. You love for it to be about you. I love for it to be about me. I love to go home and I'm getting to eat what I want to eat. I love to be able to watch what I want to watch. I love for someone to beat my needs. I love to show up and my slippers are at the front door. Man, I, that doesn't ever happen, but I love for it to be about me. I go to a restaurant. I want it to be about me. I go out anywhere in public. I want it to be about me. If I'm in line and I have to wait, I want it to be about me. I want y'all to get out of my way so I can be first. Listen, we, we, are, we are taught that individuality is the way to happiness. We want it to be about us, and it is not. It's not. It's about God. He's first. He's best. He's most. He's last. If there were other words, we'd throw those in there. Listen, it is about God. This is what Isaiah says when he says he is seated on a throne because he has authority and he has honor. Think about when you give stuff away. Is it about you or is it about what God's doing in your life? 
Like I can remember when I was uh, first began, began to be aware of homeless people. And, you know, you'd walk by a homeless person. You'd be like, I can't give them any money, you know, because they'll just waste it on beer and marijuana, right? Weed, that's what, or dope. That's what my parents would call it, right? I mean, now p- part of me, and I get it, helping can hurt. And there's a whole lot of other issues in that. But there's a lot of people like, I'm not going to give to something because I don't know what they're going to do with it. And all of a sudden, it's about you, isn't it? All of a sudden, it's about you. It's not what God's doing in your life. Hey, what about forgiveness? And there's that person out there. They, they haven't asked me to forgive them, right? If they just asked me to forgive them, and all of a sudden, it's about you. And forgiveness is about God. You, you forgive. Why? Because that's who he is. That's what he's called us to do. Now, reconciliation, different story. But forgiveness, it is not about us. Anytime life's about us, it is always small, always small. You know some small-minded people, and when you start talking to them, they never ask about you. They never, they never, they never check in on you. They never ask a question about you. Why? Because it's about them. You get your feelings hurt very easy when people don't talk to, ask you about you. Guess what? It's about you if your feelings get hurt. You get defensive. You get insecure. Why? Because it, it's about you, and it's not supposed to be. Man, life is better lived. Life Everything revolves around God seated high. Man, this is good news because he is worthy. Man, our God is a great God. Amen, somebody? Like in Isaiah, in the, in the next few verses, he says this. It says, above him stood the seraphim. I'm going to I'm, I'm explain all that in just a second. Let me just read these verses. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. One called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. I read too far. The foundations, the foundations and the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. Now, you'll notice this creature that's referenced called the seraphim. It literally means burning one. Man, these are nuclear-powered worship leaders is what they are. A lot of times they'll be referred to as angels. They're not technically the same angels that you see, like the one that shows up to Mary to tell her that Jesus is going to be born and some other things that happen. But they are nuclear-powered. It seems like there's millions and millions of them based on what we read in other places of the Scripture. So here is, here is God living and being worshipped by these seraphim, these nuclear-powered worship leaders. Listen, because of God's glory, he is worthy of worship. Because of God's glory, he is worthy of worship. Now, one, one definition of glory goes like this. It is God's going public with his holiness. Glory is kind of defined as God going public with his holiness. And these seraphim, as they talk, it says the thresholds shook. That's a little different image than little Jesus meek and mild, isn't it? Like the flannel thing you may have done in Sunday school when you were growing up. Some of you guys did that. Like even the pictures that we get now, which we should, that you put on your refrigerator from your kids and their pictures of Jesus, it's a little different image. Man, it is holy. It is, it is monumentous. Um, it is loud. It is loud. Like last week at 1045, it thundered so loud in here, people couldn't even, couldn't even hear. It was the Lord speaking to some people because they were sinners. But <laughs> I think it was me he was talking to. Like we were in Seattle last, Debbie and I were in Seattle uh, last fall, 
And uh, we just went into town. We had never been there and had some other things to do. So we flew into Seattle, going to do some touring. And so uh, we took the train from the airport downtown or down into the area where our hotel was. We like to take public transportation whenever possible. It's fun. The sights are always interesting. Uh, and if it's not at night, it's usually pretty safe. And so we took the subway down. And it was Seattle, so it's questionable, but um, right with the French, right? And so we, <laughs> we took the train and uh, we got out of the train and we are transitioning to a bus. And as we did, all of a sudden, this, the, the building started rumbling. And this loud noise came over us and everybody got down and uh, crouched down and looked up afraid. It got our attention. And what had happened was there was an NFL game going on downtown and that was the flyover of the military aircraft that shook the block that we were on. Like this is the image that we get of God. And God, God will get our attention. And the seraphim are just saying this over and over and worshiping over and over again. I mean, I thought of this this week. This is probably for somebody. You should write this down. When God gets our attention, we access his heart. Hey, when God gets our attention, we access his heart. And we see the seraphim just singing over and over again. And what's the set list for the seraphim? Holy, holy, holy. And you are different. You are set apart Man, you are, you are other than, you are holy. Listen, God is not your caddy. He's not your co-pilot. Man, God is God, and God is holy. So we see the seraphim just continue to sing this over and over, and they do it three times just for emphasis. Then it says this, the whole earth is full of his glory. The whole earth is full of his glory. You know, last night there was a meteor shower. I don't know if any of you were able to stay up and watch that. The glory of God. Like when you wake up in the morning and the fog rolls in, screaming the glory of God. Man, when you see the, the trees that are green, when you hear the frogs and you hear the insects singing, it is the glory of God. Every time you see a sunrise come up, guess what? The glory of God. And guess what? It just rose again somewhere and again and again and again. And again and again, and he's doing it over and over and over. That is the glory of God. Listen, if you don't have a category today, and here's just a couple of pictures of some of the things that we have. That is an unedited picture of a waterfall right there. I took that, not really, but that picture is amazing. And then the simplicity of a flower that God made and the millions of those that exist, the mountains that just grab our heart and tell us that there's something else out there. Then you have a sunrise with a waterfall. And then finally you have the nebula in outer space. That's the birthplace of stars. And it's hard to even wrap our mind around the glory of God and creation. But, but one of the things that we see, even Paul, one of the guys that wrote part of the Bible, talks about this idea that we have creation that tells us, that points our heart to the reality that there is a God. There's a C.S. Lewis quote. He says, if we find ourselves with the desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world, that we were made for another world. Because what we see in creation stirs our soul, and it just helps us to know. It is one of the ways that God is trying to wake us up. 
is when we see his glory, when something in us that we can't explain is bubbling up inside of us. That is, the glo- that is God trying to wake us up to how great he is and worthy of worship. Hey, and when you're able to get that level of focus on something that big, have you ever noticed how other small things just fade into the background? Like small worries and cares and concerns. I just want you to ask yourself right now, like what are you worried about right now? Just think about it. What are you worried about right now? For some people, there's some big worries. The majority of worries, though, probably won't matter in a couple weeks. Am I right? When you begin to think about what we worry about, what we get all worked up about, hey, what are you complaining about right now? That'll kind of tell you where you're living in. And as we kind of focus our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, so many things fade into the background. Like if I'm in a room many times and Debbie walks in, I kind of, that's my wife, when Debbie walks in, I kind of lose everybody else that's in the room, right? Why? I'm just so happy to see her. Why? Everything else begins to fade away because in that moment, she's the most important person in the room. And this is the power of seeing God for how great he is. Let me ask you this. What gets your attention? What gets your attention? When you wake up in the morning and when you're driving down the road, when you're in your office or carpooling, when you're volunteering at your kid's school, when you're coaching your kid's sports, like what, what is it that gets your attention? Listen, God should get all of our attention. Man, he is only God is great. Now, now there's this other component to God's glory that I want to talk about. Listen, because of God's glory, God is good. Okay? Because of God's glory, God is good. Good. And I think that any chance that I get to tell you that God is good, I think I should do that. Because in our culture, and maybe even in your tradition, however you grew up, God's goodness may not be something that comes up to the top when you think about God. And so we need to talk about, like, what does that even look like? It starts, what we see, it starts um, with Moses. How many of you guys heard of Moses? Okay, so let's go back to the beginning. He was born, put in the Nile River. No, I'm kidding. Um, now, Moses, we know, got the Ten Commandments. Okay, God comes to him, the prince of Egypt, and says, will you lead my people out of Egypt into the promised land? And so Moses, through a series of events, ends up leading the people out of Egypt, three million out of Egypt, into the wilderness, into the promised land. This is Moses' job. And in part of the journey, Moses, the people of God had rebelled against God. And they had created what? Idols. They had reduced God. And so God says, I'm done. Like, I'm going to destroy you. And Moses says, please don't do that. All my work down the tubes. That'd be terrible. And so as Moses and God are having this conversation, Moses asks him, he says, hey, would you, would you show me, show me your glory? Show me your glory. And in Exodus chapter 33 Starting in verse 18, it says this. Moses says, show me your glory. And he says this, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. So he asked for his glory. What does he see? His goodness. Listen, God is good to us. And as I said last week, God is good for us. But we all have this question. Is God really good? And if God is good, then what about these bad things? Start, you know where that started? Adam and Eve, the very first humans. Satan comes to Eve and says, did God really say not to do that? God's holding out on you. 
and he put a question into the universe. Is God good? And listen, this is the definition of faith. You know, sometimes we think that faith is just believing in God, like we muster up this fake belief or this something that just comes internally from us. But in reality, the Bible teaches us faith is just believing that God is good. It says without faith, it's impossible to please God, that whoever would draw near to him must what believe that he rewards those who seek him. This is, what, this is the definition of faith, that we believe that God is good, even when we can't see what he's doing. We have to believe that God is good. Man, even, even when things, we would do things differently, we have to believe that God is good. Even when it seems like a dead end, we have to believe, we have to fight, we have to hold on to the reality that God's glory is his goodness. And it's always what's best for you. Maybe that's your question today. You have a dream that's died. Job didn't turn out. Man, some health problem. Someone in your family has passed away. And your, your, your marriage just seems like destruction. Your kids are rebellious. You don't have kids, whatever it is. You may be questioning that today. And this is, this is the foundation of God's glory. He is good. And he will. He will reward those who diligently seek him. So that is God's glory. But we also have his grace we also have his grace that we see show up in Isaiah's life. In verse, in verse 5, it says this. He says, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. By the way, the Lord of hosts literally means the God of angel armies. Uh, he's the one leading the charge. Fierce. And he goes on, says, one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. He touched my mouth and said, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. So he starts out with this, this phrase, woe is me. Woe is me. Like when, when you see God, that's going to be your response. Woe is me. Like some people think this. They're like, you know, when I see God, I got some questions for him. No, you don't. Just trust me. No, no, you don't. He's got some questions for you. That's who's going to be answering some questions. Listen, Isaiah sees himself clearly in that moment when he sees God clearly. When he sees the greatness of God, he realizes how sinful he is, that he's just dirty, that he's separate. He is not who God is. Like another way to phrase that is what can happen is when we have all of our affections and things that get our attention and we have those out of order, and we don't have God first as the central focal point of our life, the Bible says that that's sin. And, and this is what happens. But God has what? Grace for us. Man, God has grace for us. I just want to spend the rest of my time talking about grace the rest of this time, and then I'm going to take some extra time too. Um, I just want to talk about the grace of God. Now, now, it's beyond all of us that we would get something for free. Like we know better. We don't, you don't get anything for free. You get what you pay for. That's what we get. And because we have separated from God, our hearts and souls know that something's not right. So what do we opt for? Because you get nothing from free, guess what? We opt for achievement. Any high achievers in the room? Anybody work more than 50 hours this week? And we, we, we go for achievement. And that's just a lot of pressure to live under. That's a lot of stress. 
Man, it's a lot of anxiety to think that we have to achieve everything in our lives. And because God knew that, he, he provided a solution. Now, now for, for, for women, it looks like, it looks like though, scrolling through Instagram, thinking, that's not my body type. That's not the clothes that I wear. Man, my house doesn't have those boutique items in it. And there's just this pressure to live up to what we see out there on the surface. And we try to achieve that. And the same goes, obviously, for guys. It's just we, we look at different things. Man, we want to know, do we have what some of our friends may have? We want to know, are we as strong as they are? Like, do we measure up? Will I ever be found out to be a fraud? Like, what happens if people really knew what was going on. So we put up this mask and this scaffolding around our life, and we call it achievement. We call it the American dream. I mean, there, and there's nothing wrong with working hard. And But when we think we're going to earn our way to God, we've been sold a lie that is going to run us straight into the ground. It is tiring. It is pressure. And we don't have to live that way. So Jesus comes along, and the image we have here when he talks about the coals touching Isaiah's lip, that literally is an image of Jesus, the finished work of Christ, where he steps in so that we don't have to. That Jesus comes in, and he recognizes recognizes that there's sin. Now, he, he doesn't say sin doesn't matter. He doesn't say, hey, you do you. You live your truth. Not even close. Man, part of the glory of God is there's this ethical and moral standard that he holds us to. Why? Because that's who he is as creator. And because we can't keep that, Jesus comes along to forgive us and to give us life and freedom and hope and peace and joy and purpose and most importantly, eternity. Come on, somebody. Like this is what we get when we begin to follow Jesus and that's what grace is. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. Have you ever heard this? Just a sinner saved by grace. Just a sinner saved by grace. Like, was God doing you a favor? Like, that's what that sounds like. Like, are, are you really nothing? No, you were worth so much that Jesus died for you. Like, that God orchestrated the entire history from the very first sin of Adam and Eve until right now in this room today at 959 so that you could come to know how great he is. Listen, God loves you deeply, and we don't have to earn it or achieve it, and it is a scandal. Hello? Man, it is something that nobody understood in Jesus' day. It is something that people today don't even understand that there's this grace. Grace doesn't mean it doesn't matter. Grace doesn't mean, yep, I'm forgiven, I'm going to get into heaven, so I'm just going to go do what I want. If that's your mentality, you clearly have a wrong understanding of who God is. Don't forget these are coals that will purify your mouth. Don't forget that it shook the thresholds of the temple. Don't forget that he has created everything, and there is something he's holding us to, but we don't have to achieve it ourselves. Jesus comes along and says, I got it. I got it. And so we, we can quit striving and trying and working so hard to achieve the things that we can't, we can't even get. There's two things that happen in grace. There's a lot of things. There's two things that I want to talk about. Listen, first of all, you get a new identity. Like you're a new person. All those names you call yourself, that's not true. Man, it's not true. You get a new identity and you get a new hope. You get a new hope. Your hope's not in your marriage. 
Your hope's not in your children. Your hope's not in your job. And your hope is in eternity. Your hope is who you're living for, and that's Jesus. And when you begin to realize how great and awesome he is, man, everything else just fades away. And you get a new hope. And one of the things that a new hope brings you, rest. Over in Isaiah chapter 40, this is kind of one of those famous verses. If you've ever seen Remember the Titans, you heard this song on Remember the Titans. It says this, Even youth shall faint and be weary, young men shall fall exhausted, but they who wait for the Lord shall what? Renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not be weary. They will walk and not faint. Anybody tired? Just needing some rest from the responsibilities and the rhythms and the routines of life? And we have God that offers this to us for free. For free. But we have to, we have to see that only God is great. Hey, listen, when this happens in, fa- in individuals and families, things begin to change. Hey, and when it happens in churches, revivals break out. And one of the things you can always count on, and I know we have a lot of new people in, this, in the last couple weeks. We're so excited that you're here. But more than being here, we're so excited that God's just going to wreck your life. That's what we're excited about. And when you walk in and you see Elevate the Name of Jesus written in the lobby, you can know, you can know that we're smoking what we're selling right there. <laughs> I want to close out just reading one of the quintessential passages about seeing God for who he is and how we can see him and experience in him. In Colossians chapter 1, Paul's a guy writing this, and he's talking about Jesus. He's just come through a passage where he's talking about Jesus, and he says this. Don't ever forget this. He is the image of the invisible God. When you look at Jesus, you are looking at God. When you see how Jesus operated, how he loved, when you see his patience, when you see his kindness, when you see his joy, when you see him full of grace and truth, you are seeing God. That's who you see. The image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation, meaning that everything was created by him. It says, by him all things were created. All things were created through him and for him. That everything in creation that you love, Jesus did that. Everything, the food that you eat, that you enjoy, the sleep that you get at night, man, the conversations that you have that are so deep, the acts of service, the people that you help, the blessings that you get, all of that came through Jesus. Everything was created. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. The fact that you're breathing right now, Jesus is doing that. Man, that your body is working and pumping blood over miles of blood vessels, Jesus is doing that. The fact that your retina can take some light, transform it into your optic nerve so that you can see Jesus is doing that. Everything holds together. Oh, this is great. He is the head of the body, the church. Man, Jesus is the head of the church. Man, he is head of this church. I don't need to feel any pressure for that. I just have to stand up and talk for 30 minutes. Man, Jesus is the head of the church. He is the one who is leading us. He is the one who is in charge. He is the one who has a plan for his church. He knows that we carry the words of life to the world, and he is the one who wants to see us flourish. Man, he is the head of the church. He wants to see revival happen. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. That means best. He's the only one who rose from the dead. Like, have you ever thought about all the things you can't do? 
all the things that you can't do. Man, you can't get home from work without GPS. You can't fix a leaky toilet half the time. You can't raise from the dead. Jesus did that. And because of that, he is preeminent. Goes on to say, in him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Amen. Like he has reconciled us back to God. Only God is great. Why, why would you give your attention to anything else? Let's pray together.